0: Welcome to the first episode of the Post Punk Podcast. I am your host and editor-in-chief of postpunk.com, Alex Baker. Today's guest is Mark Reeder. Mark is a Mancunian expat that moved to Berlin during the late 70s and ended up representing factory records there. Mark would then bring Joy Division over for their famous Kant Kino gig and also convince Nick Cave to move to the city, with Nick ending up crashing on Mark's couch. Mark also managed Malaria, and he formed his own band, the Unbeconsin, which later changed his name to Shark Vegas, with the group going on to tour with New Order. Mark's story is chronicled in the wonderful documentary film, B-Movie, Lust and Sound in West Berlin. Additionally, Mark just released his fantastic new remix album, Subversive Decadent, which I believe was his classification by the Stasi during the 80s. Mark also just released his diabolically good Dirty Devil remix of New Order's latest single, Be a Rebel. Also, before we get to the podcast, I wanted to take a moment and recommend both parts of Stephen Morris's autobiography, Record, Play, Pause, and Fast Forward, Confessions of a Post-Punk Percussionist. You can find these both on Audible, read by Stephen Morris himself, and I think it's my favorite take on the story of New Order, Joy Division, and Factory Records. It's very unbiased, self-aware, self-effacing, and overall very funny. And now for the interview. Let's go. So like to get started here, I wanted to ask, what was it like for you growing up in Manchester? And if you could tell me about what you were doing there, and then how do you ended up in Berlin? But first, like, what were you listening to growing up? You worked at a record store? Oh, yeah. My, well, my musical journey began when I was a really,
1: really small child, like about four four years old. And, uh, you know, I was, I was fascinated by this record called uh, Telstar by The Tornadoes. And I kept asking my mum, you know, like, why don't they only play it once on the radio in the mornings? And my mother's like, it's the radio. And eventually she got so fed up with me, like, I always wanted to hear this record again and again and again that she dragged me down to our local record shop and made me buy it. She gave me the money and said, right, I'll go and buy it. And I still have this record, actually. It's unplayable to buy, you know, today, but it's, I still own it. That's when, you know, my kind of like, you know, we had a, a dance set Bermuda mono record player that could play stacks of seven inch singles and you know when my father suddenly saw that I was a bit of interested in music he just went out and bought a lot of singles for us you know and um yeah things like the beatles and stuff like that yeah and i, and I just kind of you know i was fascinated by say doctor who for example that was the first time i ever heard any say, electronic music as a child i mean i was only like also about four or five years old and, uh, and, and the Doctor Who theme came on. And, and the, the build-up for, t- for this TV show was huge and it was like, it came on Saturday. At Sunday it was actually, it was supposed to be shown on Saturday. I think John F. Kennedy was shot the day before. And then they, sh- they showed this science fiction series. But the, the music was the thing which totally fascinated me. It was like completely otherworldly. And then it was years before I heard anything, anything remotely like it. And that was when I was, you know, eight years old, something like this, 10 years old, can't remember, it must have been about 80, 1986 when I heard Switched On Bach by Walter Carlos. Now I had an elder cousin who would drag me around record shops on Saturday afternoon because my, my mother and his mother would sit smoking, talking about the war, and we'd have to go off and, you know, he always wanted to buy records because he was a bit older than me. Oh, and uh, so he dragged me down to the record shops in Manchester and it just like... Back then, you know, to listen to music in the record shop, you didn't have a pair of headphones. You had like what was like a telephone box, you know, and they'd shove you, shove you in, it shoved me in there, you know, and there's a little stool and the loudspeaker above my head, and it just choose a record, you know, anything. And I'd just sit there listening to this music. I had no idea what it was most of the time. And uh, you know, and, and I got to know all these like weird bands, you know, through through my cousin and you know, I saw this record one day. There was a record on the wall, and it had a picture of these loads of naked women on the cover. And I said, him, "What's that record? What's that record?" Shove him in the box. You know, and listen to it. And I heard this record every every week when we go. I said, "I want to hear that record again." And I couldn't understand the way I'd like. That's not the same record. Said, yeah, it's the same record. I said, No, it wasn't. It was different. It was different. It's a different record. No, it's the same record. And it took me a while before I realized it was a what was called a double album. And this record was Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix.
0: Mm.
1: And, I, and I needed this record. I needed it, you know. I, I, I didn't want to just listen to it every other Saturday when I went to the record shop with my cousin. I, I needed to buy this record. I had to like work out how, how, can I, how can I buy this record. And I had, to like, I had my Christmas money and my birthday money and I got all this kind of like you know, odd jobs running to go and get 20-part drive cigarettes for the old people across the road, you know, like go to the shops, you know. Do any cleaning up or whatever, you know, something in the garden, just anything to, to accumulate some cash, you know, and, and they give us sixpence for doing it and shilling, you know, which was like about five pence or something. And, um, and then, uh, you know, I eventually got, obtained enough money to go back to Manchester to buy this record. And I snuck on, I was oh, like 10 years old, 11 years old, nipped on the bus, told my mum I was going to the model shop to look at model aeroplanes. And then I got on the bus and went to Manchester, went to this record shop and immediately went, but the minute I walked in, I was on my own this time, wasn't it, with my cousin. The minute I walked in, they just laughed and went, We know what you've come for. And then they, <laughs> I bought Electric Ladyland. And then I was on the bus, you know, coming home, thinking, Wow, brilliant. You know, and then I realised, Oh shit, my mum sees the cover. She's going to throw this in the bin, right? So like you're an 11 year old kid with a cover of like a bevy of naked ladies on the cover. So I had to hide this record for about five years under my bed. <laughs> for fear of my mother throwing it out I still have it as well and uh, and so and so you know like I was completely fascinated with music when my cousin bought a stereo gram it was called it was like this huge cabinet thing which is about a mile wide with like two loudspeakers in the, on each end a small record player in the middle and like a load of room for like, drinks and glasses and things so this was a stereogram. he bought this stereo you know because we only had a mono dance set Bermuda he had this stereo and he bought first record was uh, in the court of the crimson king back in crimson and we put this on and it was like i was just like mind blowed i couldn't believe what i was listening to it was like what is it had the in it and everything i was just like wow that completely blew my mind yeah and and uh, you know I, i actually like i said before i was like wendy carlos or walter carlos as he was back then um I heard this record for the first time when my cousin was going, wanted to buy a stereo and he, we went to some bloke's house and he put that on as the kind of demonstration <laughs> of what a record would sound like in stereo, on this stereogram. Anyway, my cousin eventually bought one, you know, and, the, and his first record, what he played, was in the court of the Crimson King. And so my journey kind of cascaded really from there, really. And I, I was fascinated all kinds of different kinds of music, you know, like pop music, which I heard on the radio. Um, whether it be rock or glitter and progressive rock or whatever i was kind of you know i'm, I'm eclectic i like all different kinds of things uh, me and me, me mate she's his mother she worked in at this uh, battery factory and most of the people who worked there were from jamaica so she got introduced to this kind of reggae music and so we go, go to her house and all these black guys would be sitting there smoking cigarettes and playing reggae music and stuff it was really quite eclectic you know and then and i got into Kraut Rock around about 1972 like or so. Listening to Faust and Can and all these things. Cosmic Jokers in the mid-70s. And, and it, I, I just became, you know, completely obsessed with, re- with records and buying records and finding records and you'd read about all these records and, you know, and um, and eventually I ended up... I mean, my I, the place where I go every week was Virgin Record, this really small little record shop run by Richard Branson in Manchester. He'd only really like three shops, one in Liverpool, one in Manchester and one in London. And I worked like part-time there on the weekends, you know. And uh, and I get paid in records, which was more than getting paid in money because if I'd have got paid in money, I'd have only had enough money to buy one record. Whereas if I worked there, I get like five records, five albums. And, and I could take albums home and listen to them, you know, and, and bring them back the next week if I didn't like it so it's uh it was it was really good and then and I did that for years and then eventually I ended up working there full time
0: i uh, worked at a record store when i was 18 it was at tower records and i've seen in film and television like the booths yeah but at that point they just had the little kiosk with the headphones you know they're all lined up against the wall but i got a lot of record my record collection that way
1: Yeah, and you and you got you got you know. I mean, I was lucky because when I started working there full time, I was able to go through the lists of records and things that people were offering for us uh, from the distributor, Mm -hmm. and and we just say just send us everything, you know. Don't just send us one of at least one of everything, and so so we got sent like boxes full of records that we had no idea what it was, you know. What's this, you know? And I remember, I remember like in nineteen. Seventy six. It was I think it was like, when when uh, New Rose came out. Why well, they damned? And like at the record shop that I worked in was kind of traditionally a kind of a Richard Branson kind of Mike Oldfield, you know Henry Cow with this kind of music, you know a like, bit hippie, you know. A place always smelled jostics. Neil Ian Curtis said that so you can't can't smell the drugs, <laughs> you know. And it, it was like yeah right, you did right, you know, because Ian worked in a record shop as well that's how I got some mate Ian Curtis actually working in Rare Records that was the record shop where I bought Electric Ladyland and that was another pilgrimage for, for, for place for me to go you know and, um, and and our little virgin was kind of like like purple walls with stars on it you know and then and then this record comes into the shop and it's like New rows on stiff records and I put it on it was like two minutes of like just complete and utter mayhem and all these kind of these two hippie guys who worked there they were like what the fuck's this it's, it's, it's new rose like, take it off it's horrible you know I was like brilliant they ate it you know, I was only like about 17 so I loved it the fact that I'd wind them up so it's only two minutes you can stand withstand two minutes and the people are coming in and saying what's this record what's this record it was fabulous yeah
0: with stiff records do you ever have one of those stickers if it isn't stiff it isn't worth a fuck I had a t-shirt that said that should have seen my mother's face when I walked in wearing that <laughs> <laughs> Went, take
1: that off. That's disgusting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So I wanted to, to uh, before we go on to like why you moved to Berlin, which I would mm. imagine would have been, you know, your Krautrock obsession. But I just, I noticed that you were a big fan of the show UFO. And I, I thought that was a really cool, I mean, was sci-fi a big influence on you growing up? Oh, t- totally, totally. I, w- I,
1: w- I was obsessed with Jerry Anderson from being a small charts from, from, from you know, seeing the Four Feather Falls, really. Uh, you know, that was the first series. So then came Supercar, then Stingray, Fireball XL5. You know, that was when the space race was on, you know, as the little kids, you wanted to be an astronaut when you grew up, you know, having no idea what that actually meant, you know. And, um, you know, I just, I just was like fascinated with science fiction, I think, as a child. Completely. I mean, I read like, all that. these Eric Von and books and stuff like that. You know, I was classed as this complete weirdo for reading all this kind of literature, you know. Um, and, it, and, it, and it has always kind of been some kind of fascination. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a complete nut nutcase when it comes to Jerry Anderson. I've got like, you know, part of the Van uh, fan club, you know, and, and you're getting access to all these wonderful soundtracks that Barry Gray used to make. and um, And UFO is just... Fantastic! It's this the future of the nineteen eighties? <laughs> Which looks nothing like the nineteen eighties, <laughs> even when the nineteen eighties were there. You know, everyone everyone walks around in like plastic clothing, <laughs> sits around on inflatable chairs. You know, it's brilliant though. It's a really fascinating series, and it's very psychedelic in parts. The UFO. It's really like you know to take drugs and stuff like that. You know, but the, my favorite, I suppose. I mean, I love Thunderbirds, and I love Stingray. You know, but I think my favourite is Captain Scarlet. It's become my favourite over the years, Captain Scarlet. Initially, it was kind of alright, but I thought. But in the meantime, it's taken on a, t- a completely different life of its own, Captain Scarlet, because I believe that Cap- Jory Anderson, without knowing it, you know, filmed the story of like Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. You know, with 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 the 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 Mister Ons being kind of like you know Al Qaeda kind of. Omnipresent, always there, but you never know what they look like, causing uh, people to blow up. You know, the first episode, you see a suicide bomber in the first episode of this TV kids TV show, and you know C- Captain Black, who was a former, you know, Spectrum agent, suddenly becomes like the Miss- Doctor Evil. You know, he's like the, the the evil in persona. And I was thinking, it's very very interesting the the you know the parallels drawn by this TV series, is it? when you look at it now and you look at it with with the eyes of like the 21st century eyes after 9-11 and things like that, you think, "Mm, it's pretty close. So yeah, I'm a fascinated uh, Jerry Anderson fan, I will say.
0: Mm. Did you, you played in a band while you Mm -hmm. were still in Manchester before you moved to Berlin? Yeah, yeah. I played, I played in two bands. Um, One
1: was called Joe Stalin's Red Star Radio Band. We played We played in my mates Barry's front room and uh, we never got any gigs because we didn't have a singer. And all he wanted to do was play the guitar solo from Freebird. And I was a bit kind of bored with that after a while. Kind of, you know. Yeah, he could do it really well, but you know, we weren't going anywhere. And he didn't, want, I didn't, he didn't have any passion to want to write his own songs. So I kind of left that. And then um, I left and they got a singer. And that singer was a, a, a school friend, uh, Mick Hucknall. And he, and he used to be in a band called Osiris, and uh, he did one gig with them. And then, and then he went to see the Sex Pistols at the Free Trade Hall, lesser Free Trade Hall, this concert that Buzzcocks put on. And he came back and he said, "I've seen the future. Do you want to make join a punk band? Do you want to make a punk band? You know, not form a punk band?" Oh like, yeah, sure, yeah, of course. You know, he needed me because I worked in Virgin Records and I knew everybody, <laughs> you know, and I was going to be, you know, be able to organise things and stuff. But it was, it was, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a guitar and a bass guitar, you know, so it was good. And, uh, and I joined this punk, punk we, weren't, we weren't really punk, actually, we were kind of more like new wave band, more than a punk band, to be honest. But Mick and Moe, they were like the kind of driving force behind it, really. They wanted to do this, um, you know, punk thing which wasn't really punk um yeah and, and and we were called the frantic elevators yeah and i played with them for a while until 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 i basically left england you know and uh, went to germany went to germany to buy some records <laughs> yeah i thought i'd go on to you know, take a few i'd been to germany a couple of times you know which was quite unusual for an english guy back then in the 70s you know he, the war was still fresh in people's minds, even though it's thirty years later, and um, and so so going to Germany was a bit of a taboo subject, really. And I and I didn't tell anyone I'd been to Germany. So you know, our next door neighbour when he found out, he was like, "You traitor!" Yeah, it was all that kind of attitude, you know. Like, and um, I was fascinated. I was like, "Wow, you know, it's really completely different to how I, how I imagined Germany to be," you know. Germans seem to be very pleasant. I was like, it's quite nice. And, you know, I bought a couple of records and I thought, I bet there's loads of records that they, that they don't, you know, they, for them it's just normal kind of thing. they just kind of, the you know, lying around in record shops just waiting for someone like me to come along and buy them. And so uh, on one of my trips, I just, I was determined to come to Berlin because everyone in Germany of a town said, oh, what about Berlin? Like, oh, you don't want to go there. What do you want to go there for? Like, well, you know, so it's in the middle of East Germany, surrounded by a wall. It's full of army soldiers, like the American, the British, French. You know, it's like you don't want to go there. Russians, you know, Third World War. If it starts, it's going to that'll be the place it starts. You know, I was like fascinating. I want to go. I want to go. And I kept, you know, asking people, and the, everyone in West Germany gave me a negative answer about Berlin, which kind of even made me more curious. Of course, you know, and eventually I ended, ended up in Berlin. I hitched hitchhiked to Berlin. And uh, from Hamburg, and uh, and I can't believe my eyes. It was like it, going going from West Germany into East Germany. For a start off, it was like going in through the time tunnel. It was this blackness time tunnel, and eventually you were emerged in West Berlin. It was like it was beam me up, Scotty. You know, it was like it was like that. You know, and uh, I was just I can't believe it. Like, what what? You know now I know why they didn't want me to come. You know, the, just like this place was like bullet riddled and derelict and kind of shot to pieces and kind of you know stank a coal. And it was like it was, it was like it was incredible like a looking place. You know, it didn't lead only the Kerfurstundam. You know, the main the main road. You know, like, shiny gleaming chrome and glass. You know, affluence of a sort. But the rest of it was all fucked up. It was all <laughs> completely <laughs> bullet riddled. And I was like, wow, this is great. And then the next day you know, I arrived and this hit guy picked me up uh, in his car and he's, he said, where are you staying tonight? I said, I don't know, I'm fine somewhere. He goes, oh, you can stay in our houses. We live in a commune and we're allowed, to le- we're allowed to leave this house. It's about to be torn down. You can stay there for a while. And he, and he gave me a skeleton key. And there was a six, six-room apartment upstairs. So he had the skeleton key for this room. And I went in there and I couldn't believe it. it was like a palace, you know. And I, I'd grown up in Manchester in a council house, yeah. It was like a you know, small council house and a council estate. And I come to this palatial building with a four-meter high ceiling and, you know, you know, wooden floorboard, parquet flooring and white marble bathroom and everything. And I was like, what's this? It's, a, it's like a palace, balcony, you know. I couldn't believe it. And I stayed there for eight months. You know, it was like it became my home and like the next day when I arrived I thought I better tell my mum I've arrived, okay you know, because I was only 20 I thought she'd be worried so I went to get some change and walked down the street and the corner of the street was a bar and I just walked in there and there's people kind of sitting around all little blokes drinking schnapps This is about 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, and someone was stuck in, stuck in the shelves and I just said it's, ensure the inhibitor freaking the English and this person turns around and it's like Six foot six transvestite with bright red hair and a polka dot dr- top on. <laughs> she goes, "Yes, darling, what can I do for you?" I'm
0: like, oh God, I'm in Berlin. Oh, man, some things never change.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was it was a total eye opener because we don't we only had one transvestite in Manchester. That was Fufu Lamar, um, and and here uh, on this 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 after hours bar. Ah, in Manchester, and uh, it was always full. It was always full of like underage drinkers and policemen, yeah. and uh, and to come to Berlin, like and come into this kind of just a normal street with normal people sitting around, and normality was this transvestite serving the the drinks at ten o'clock in the morning, and and being very kind of cliche, kind of like yes, darling you know, to me. Because I was like probably I was the the youngest thing that probably walked in the place in about thirty years, you know. And he was very 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 uh, head off heels, and uh, I went there quite often. Actually, it was quite nice.
0: When you got there, was was uh, David Bowie still a kind of strong presence on the city? Um,
1: well, he yes and no. I mean, not not really. No, it it just left actually. It just, I, I, he, I arrived I think about August and he, he, he just left in June to go to Switzerland or something in Japan I don't know I can't remember where he went but he just he, he kind of left and, and, and the, the, the still, he still had his flat and I don't think he'd intended to actually leave forever sort of thing but he'd kind of gone away and in the back half of the house in the hinterhof as they call it yeah, the yard that's where Iggy lived Um. But it wasn't like everyone just talked about David Bowie being in Berlin. Actually, it was it was very low key Bowie when he came to Berlin. He was able to kind of just like ride around on a bicycle and you know just do you know normal things like go to to the supermarket and buy milk and things. So it was like it wasn't like he was. Living a sort of starry life, sort of thing here, you know. I mean, he worked here. He did quite a lot of work here, of course. You know, he did. He, he got back into painting in Berlin when he came to Berlin. He met all these artists. Every everyone in Berlin was an artist, you know, I mean? of some of some sort. And it kind of like, you know, he went to the Brooker Museum and yet saw all these like impressionist art, you know, forbidden art from the Third Reich and it's impressionist art. And he was really impressed by that. And, Got back into painting, and it kind of gave him, a, you know, Berlin gave him a new, a new lease of life after being in this cocaine binge in Los Angeles, you know, and it kind of reflect. He got completely cleaned up, you know, and, and and Iggy just lived in the back of the house, you know, like, and a, and a friend of mine who was he was living up like someone I met here. This guy, this guitarist called Avi's Davis, he was a friend of Iggy's who was looking after Iggy's flat and watering David's rubber plant, um. Uh, and he was like, you know, do you, do you want to come and see Debbie Bowie's flat? I was like, yeah, sure. So I we went across into the front of the house, into his flat. And I, was, I was expecting to see some kind of like, you know, super designer flat. And it was just, just like just like somebody's normal working class place. <laughs> I was totally shocked. <laughs> but that was Bowie's flat, you know. But he'd already left, unfortunately. I didn't, We never got to meet him.
0: It seemed like he wasn't there for that very long
1: in total, it was it was in Berlin for eleven months, yeah, with on off, mean. you know, you know, all in total.
0: So, how did you get involved with the Factory Records over in Berlin?
1: Well, I knew Ian uh, Curtis from working in rare records, like I said, um, and I knew Rob Gretton because Rob Gretton was a DJ at Discotheque in Manchester, and uh, he was constantly in the record shop. He's like, oh almost every single day he was in the record shop he'd come in every single day and um, and I got to know Rob really well and uh, and Tony Wilson he was a TV personality at the time he was on the, he read the local news uh, but he would come in every Saturday evening around about sort of five o'clock just before closing time and he'd always say, put, put, put some of the best records aside if you think you hear anything that's really good, really, you know, put it aside. So I'd collect, I'd collect kind of records that I thought would be good for Tony Wilson. And um, and so I knew these people, I knew Pete Savile, you know, Pete Savile was one of our regular shop, like, coming to the shop and buy regular, and I, was, I, I was if you get any obscure kraut rock records, you can recommend. Yeah, yeah, Michel Roter, you can have that, you know, Flamander Hertz, and it kind of, you know, was like, Wow. So I knew all, all these people, you know, like, and all not, and, you know, everyone in this scene, really, to be honest, because, you know, Pete Shelley I knew for years and, and Howard DeVoto coming into the shops all the time, you know, all these kind of people. Malcolm uh, Garrett came in. There was like a lot, you know, a lot of different people who were involved in you know, the development of the, the the Manchester music scene. You know, Tosh Ryan, who ran Rabid Records and Slaughter and the Dogs, really Slaughter and the Dogs Records and Jilted John and things like that. They were always in the shop, you know. And because we sold their records in the shop, they were always there, you know. And so I knew Rob and I knew Tony and I knew Peter Saville. And then when when I came to Berlin, you know, they just started factory records, you know, more or less. And when I came to Berlin, they just went, oh, you know, you're there. Can you <laughs> can you promote Joy Division's record? Actually, actually, Rob said to me, can you? I've just repressed an Ideal for Living as a 12 inch. It sounds much better. Can you promote it? Maybe get maybe we can get some gigs. And I thought, yeah, great. You know, it's like they'll love this it's totally Berlin you know and nothing no, no radio station played anything I didn't even get a, a thank you letter for sending it out you know it's just like no zero reaction I was really disappointed oh they need to see they need to see Joy Division to be able to understand Joy Division it's like it's not just the record the record's not as self-covered but they need to see it and try to get them a gig now I don't know who's interested and it was only after when Unknown Pleasures came out and it got kind of favorable reviews in the in the New Musical Express and um Melody Maker and that. That then I could kind of take this newspaper then to the promoter and can Connie Kantchak who ran the the, the uh Kant Kino, and I said, Look, you know, this is my mate's band, you know, it's got a really good view of the LP. And I gave him a cassette, actually I recorded it I didn't give him a copy of the record. And uh I so thought he probably might not never, never listen to it. And if I give him a record, I could give that to someone who appreciates it, you know. Anyway, eventually he was like, hey, they're not bad then, Yeah, can maybe put them on. And then, and then when I heard that they were doing a tour of Holland and Rob told me, yeah, we, we've got a gig in Cologne. I was like, ah, Cologne, it's really close to Berlin. It's just... You know, look on the map; it's really close, is it? Like, it wasn't wasn't at all close. You know, back then it was miles away. Miles away now, it was miles away then because he had to. He could only drive at 100 kilometers an hour through East Germany. You know, so it's like five hours drive or something. Anyway, so I, I managed to talk him into coming to Berlin, and then played at the Kant Kino and uh, that was a, that was a, a bit of a disaster, really. No, no one came to that. Fifty-eight people came to that gig, and. Uh, and everyone was really kind of a bit sceptical about this band from Manchester. You know, well, what are they with this kind of like touching on kind of Nazism with the f- little drummer boy? You know, Hitler Youth drummer on the front cover of the first single. Kind of was a bit kind of like t- tinged with some kind of animosity. Anyway, you know, so they're all standing there looking really sort of sceptical on the front of the at the audience. You know, and uh, some like they they the, 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 they had a really shit PA in, the, in the, the the PA system that they brought with them. You know, it was rubbish. Costs about ten p a night, you know. It's complete utter trash. And uh, someone at the front was shouted, "You know, in German, can you turn the vocals up?" And Bernard Summers just turns to him and says, "Speak fucking English, you German bastard!" And that kind of ruined the gig. Then virtually, it was like it was just like this sheet of ice came across. Them. And but they loved it. actually, and they thought it was a great. It was a, it was a quite a good gig. But like they, they loved, they loved it. You know, and they loved Berlin. You know. And that's how our association kind of like developed further. Over the years and that's I how i the, became involved then with Fats and records
0: <laughs> i love the pictures that you've uh, shared from from that trip and there's the picture of you um everybody's in the room i think bernard's took the picture if i'm not mistaken you're on the phone i think you have the phone no no here. rob's on the phone rob's, rob's on, on the, the phone. phone i'm just you're, but you're in the laughing. back like smiling yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay yeah it's a great picture um that gig though was there anybody I don't think it's going to be like the Sex Pistols gig in Manchester. But was there anybody there that later went on and did something, or you don't I know? Haven't the faintest idea, Well, me. I <laughs> <laughs> well, haven't, haven't the faintest idea.
1: You know, like who actually was actually at their gig. You know, at, um, I know, I know a couple of people like Michelle Schreimer, who was in P One E. He was there. Uh, he might, he might. Well, no, he actually, he'd actually made a single before that, so. There's a couple of people who were interested obviously in the in in the band, you know, who came to the gig. Uh, but I don't know if it kind of like sparked off this kind of like German dark wave scene of any kind. Yeah. apart from myself, you know, which I got kind of dragged into the into at the end of that year of nineteen eighty. I got dragged into being you know performing. I had no intention of actually being in a band ever again after the Frantic Elevators, you know. I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't mind having a guitar and playing, but I don't want to do this as a job, you know. And, um, but but it was a New Year's Eve party at XS Club in Berlin. It was the last the last night of the club. They were closing down after that, you know. They had th- three nights of, like, music, 24 hours, you know, just a well, longer, like 72 hours. And then... Um, and there was a gap in the in the in the in the program, and the the promoter just said to me, "Can you can you can you just fill in?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah," completely off my face. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Because I'll nip home and get your guitar and come back, and you can like play, you know, for a, for a fifteen minutes. <laughs> so so I did that, and then someone else, someone who was in the audience, said, oh, it's really good. That you know, do you want to do a gig?" <laughs> and it just kind of spiraled out of control from then on. Yeah, And then, then I uh, ended up forming this band called the Umbicanton. The unknown. Which is the unknown, yeah. Yeah. And that was is Domen, of course.
0: Some people like credit that to being like an early dark wave band or influential on on gothic rock in some ways. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, we were just miserable. Were you? Yeah, we were miserable. We sang miserable. We made miserable, depressive music. <laughs> Some of the life people think we're like, you know, Godfather's a goth or something.
0: You know, it's kind of kind of, very much in contrast to what would come later with Shark Vegas.
1: Yeah, there was, a, there was a point where we decided we wanted to have a bit of uh, entertainment in our sets and have a bit of fun. And we've been, Anyway, know, I've been going to the Metropole Discotheque since I arrived here. You know, Metropole Discotheque was the biggest gay disco in Europe at the time. And it was, and they played this kind of dark underground club music, which you didn't hear anywhere else, you know. It was different, completely different to Sound Discotheque, which kind of played an eclectic mix of anything from Tangerine Dream to David Bowie and everything in between and uh or superfly you know uh they they were like these they were kind of much more commercialized whereas like this metropole disco played a completely different kind of music you know and it kind of really captivated me this this huge immense place and this kind of vibe that you didn't find in a a kind of like a normal discotheque disco this was like something else it was like another world and i wasn't there every friday and saturday night (laughs) like every single night you know like a night out would be you know you go to a, a bit literally a night out you know you go out go out to sound about sort of like at nine o'clock ten o'clock and to a bar and then it just kind of lasts like cascade until the nine o'clock the next day you know um and the and the Metropole was absolutely fantastic you know and I learned quite a lot of things from from that kind of music and the diversity of that sort of music you know it's like when it became high energy you know but I've been fascinated with that, you know. Like, like after hearing "I Feel Love" by Donna Summer in the seventies, it was like that was like an otherworld, otherworldly world, record entirely. And I remember saying to, to, uh, to uh, recommending it to uh, to uh, Howard Devoto, and he was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" You know, how did they make this record? And we had no idea how they'd made it. You know,
0: were you aware of Giorgio Moroder at that point, or?
1: I only knew him from like something one of these kind of like glitter bands yeah Son of My Father <laughs> was was his record his kind of minor hit yeah um, that was the only that's the only really thing I knew and I knew about you know like later on it kind of when he started to become a bit more like popular after after he'd produced the first couple of things by Donald Summer it was like then start, his name started to become a bit more kind of seriously taken you
0: know. I wanted to say that you mentioned the Metropole. That's the last place I went to a club night before COVID hit, was Not over really, the Metropole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, because they rarely do things over there anymore. Yeah, they
1: do. Yeah. yeah.
0: But it was uh, for a torture garden Berlin. So it was like the fetish event yeah. that they normally have in London. And it was the first time I was there and just a multi club level club like that. It's so gorgeous. And so, yeah. 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 And it's. I mean, you know, it's like bigger than Bergheim, kind I of think, isn't it? It, it?
1: it was actually bigger before they renovated it in like the early nineties, and it was actually the actual the old the old Metropole was actually you know almost like a third bigger. Yeah, it was a fascinating, fascinating club. They had a big kind of like light thing that came down. They called it the UFO because it came down with all these lasers and everything. Yeah, it was actually really cool. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like, that's that, that place kind of was the birth of, like, electronic dance music, really, in Berlin. It was, the like, underground dance music, electronic dance music, for sure.
0: I wanted to ask, how did you get involved with the malaria?
1: How did I get involved in malaria? Well, in my capacity as being the representative for Fatter Records, Manchester. I, you know, I wanted to kind of, like, talk her into, you know, buying in some records. And she worked in this record shop called Zenzor, which was in the back half of a shop called Blue Moon in the Veltzikstrasse.
0: Who is this? uh, I'm sorry. Who who is this? uh, uh, Gudrun or... or Gudrun, yeah. She she worked in a record shop. And... um, and I met her in the record shop. You know, just,
1: just like found this record heard about it, went there. You know, and, and I realized, oh, he sells sell, most of the things in this shop are uh, from England. You know, he's a and 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 uh, Goodrum was working there, and she would said, yeah, the guy guy owns the place. He goes to England regularly and brings back a van full of records. I thought like, oh, I can buy some of, some factory records, maybe sell some records yeah. You know, so so I was in, I got in contact with Gudrun. And, and she and she introduced me basically to the to this kind of fledgling new wave scene, really, quite early on, you know. And she was, she was like, she'd just started a band called and D. and And um, I went to see him perform. And uh, I was like, I was like, what is that? Because it was nothing like, it was in no way like punk rock and it was no way like anything conventional. It was completely, completely unique in its own right, you know. it's like, it didn't follow any of the rules of rock and roll that we kind of knew and that was fantastically refreshing and it was like that and i realized really quite early on how that the 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 people making music in berlin at that point at this new wavy kind of turning point around around that's all like late 70s early 80s they weren't like playing music like we were in the uk you know like in, in in england if you're you know, we, you were in a band. The idea was that you'd be able to eventually make money out of it and that it was like, you know, you have a hit record or something like that. It was driven by that kind of desire, you know, whereas in in Berlin, it was all about expressing yourself, being artistic and expressing yourself. And it, there was no kind of drive to have a hit record at all. Yeah. It's just like, I want, I want to show how creative I am and what I can do. And I think that the music's really stood the test of time. You know, if you look at an eye button or, or, or malaria, you know, the music's really stood the test of time. It still sounds like, you know, it could have been made today, really. And I think that's really fantastic, you know. And I think, that, you know, Goodrun, Goodrun, you know, she was like a really driving force, I think the driving force, if if you like, in in, in the Berlin new, early days.
0: It seems like she's is still a highly influential in music culture in Germany to this day. Yeah, I mean, and I my always see her. Should be. Oh yeah, just, I always see her presenting something or mm-hmm. DJing something, or it's it's she's never stopped being a figure. Blix as well. He's. It seems like he's the local celebrity in Berlin.
1: Yeah, you know, like they 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 started something, and and. Um, you know that they've like been that they've not stopped doing it, and that's the thing. Which kind of uh, you know, a lot of bands they'll start something and stop, you know, or they break up, or, you know. And these these uh, artists, they have just carried on, and and they've never let they've never let uh, trends kind of like interfere with what they do. You know, trends come and go. They were part of a trend, if you like, at the beginning. But it what they, they you know, even though they were this kind of new German wave, which they really were, you know, what it later became as this kind of Neue Deutsche Welle, with kind of commerciality. They really didn't really have anything really to do with that in reality, you know, um, as, as as in sales figures wise, you know, and pop media wise. But they were the foundation for that, you know, and uh, and it's like the the pop. The, the 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 pop commercial kind of aspect fell away and became something else, whereas what they continue to do and develop and, and evolve over the years has just been you know it's just them it's just how they are and that's what is kind of maintained it over these decades and I think that's quite fascinating it's a, it's, it's not it's like you know like a band like the Rolling Stones or Depeche Mode and or New Order are probably the only like what ones who've kind of managed to do that and the Cure you know Um, maintain themselves throughout these decades and a lot of bands don't make that you know that length of time
0: and uh, the cave
1: Nick yeah I was on tour with Nick Um, I was touring I was the sound engineer the live sound engineer for uh, D Hout because I'd become the live sound engineer for malaria as well so I I saw like oh can you be our live sound engineer we're going on tour with a birthday party I said okay so I'm going on tour with this the house and then meet, um, the birthday party. And, uh, Nick was quite, he's quite curious about what, why did you move to Berlin? What's it like living in Berlin? How do you live in Berlin? And, you know, and I told him it's really cheap here. You know, my flat costs 80 marks, which is about 40 euros and uh, drink and drugs are extremely cheap and available everywhere kind of thing. And he was like, well, I'll have to come, you know. And, he, and, well, you know, we played in Berlin, so he knew a little bit about what it, it meant, but he, and he'd been kind of fascinated by what Berlin meant when, you know, after, after uh, the first gig sort of thing. And he was like, wow, how do I, how do I live there? And I'm well, like, oh, just, just come to my flat, and, you know, come to my place. You can stay there until you find a flat basically. I said, so it'd be probably really easy to get a flat. So, so he did. So one more, one, one afternoon, it was like, ding dong, and there he is with two suitcases. And so he stayed in my flat for a while until, and, and actually at the time, I didn't realise it, but uh, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't really Berlin or the scene or anything like that that actually attracted him. It was actually the, 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 girlfriend of Thomas Viedler who was the drummer of Die Hout at the time. And Thomas Viedler was formerly the drummer of Die Umberkampson. And Elizabeth Recker was his girlfriend, but she also ran this record label called Monogam Records that had released Noe first record and the PIT and uh, all these kind of like different Rainy Day Woman and all these different kind of obscure avant-garde records from Berlin. And she was she came on tour with, with us and the house as the sort of label and manager or whatever. And Nick saw her and he was like, who is that? Who is she? And he, he was completely besotted by her. And uh, he, he'd say, I'm going out to look for a flat and kind of leave, you know, come back three days later. And he, like, <laughs> he been, has been hanging around with uh, Elizabeth, uh, you know. And uh, and then one day, one afternoon, the doorbell rings, ding dong, there's a girl there standing there with red hair. I'm like, who are you? Goes, Hello, is Nick there? I'm like, who are you? She said, I'm Nick's girlfriend. And it was like I was Anita Lane. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? You know, like, where is he? Oh, he'll, be back he'll be back shortly. He's just gone to look for a flat, you know. And two days later, he comes comes home and she's like, where have you been? <laughs> and then they had to confess his infidelity. And uh, yeah, it was uh, quite a scene. But they managed to kind of sort themselves out, actually, and, kind of, you know, still maintain some kind of friendship of sorts. So it kind of all works out in the end.
0: What was your impression of Ben Bender's uh, film, De Himmel über Berlin?
1: Oh, I love I love that film. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. And I think with retrospect it's even more captivating, really. You know, at the time when it came out, it's kind of like cool, you know. I don't know about you two, but it's all right. But but you know, and I, I got to know a couple of the people who were in the film as well later on in my life here. And uh, with retrospect watching it with I mean, knowing the people, it's kind of like, well it's really really fascinating beautiful film
0: Uh, it's one of my favorites it's one of the reasons why i wanted to visit berlin as a kid so Yeah. yeah definitely one of my favorites how well did you know blixa at the time well or i got to know blixa um through just being, you know, not not just the fact that
1: he was uh, in Ein, Einsturz and Neubarton, but it was always at the gigs that we went to, and it was sort of everywhere. He was in that he worked in the bar, you know, like that we'd go to, like the Mitropa, and then the Resico you know. So I got to know quite well, and I did a few gigs with them as well. I did a few. I, I, I was the sound engineer at the Documenta in, in Castle when they did a gig there. That was really quite an experience. And uh, I did a gig with him in oh, Amsterdam for te- for television. That was also an experience mm-hmm. <laughs> as well. Yeah, but yeah, you know, like I, I got to know Blitzer quite well. Yeah.
0: Are are the legends? Does he live up to the legends about just how above cra- and beyond? Yeah, above and beyond
1: the legends. That's the, the stories are just what people notice. <laughs> you know, when you're hanging it. I, I must say, I must say, of all all, all all the people, I think the the best experience that i had was with roland s howard and lydia lunch i was on tour with them like like if you thought that blixer was you know legendary they, them they two together that was like that was that was just something else that was it was like it was like you know you're traveling around west conservative west germany with these two and constantly in the back of the car shooting up at him it's like it was like like nothing else i've ever seen honestly it was so much fun. It was such a wonderful, I mean, like a fascinating experience. But uh, you know, you get out of the car, and you go, you know, to buy some, go to some shopping or something, buy something to drink or something like that. And people would look at you as if it was like the, it was like the dawn of the dead. <laughs> These zombies walking down the street, you know.
0: Hmm. And that's a tour I wish I could have seen. That was. But what was that? When was that? Was that eighty three?
1: Oh, I can't, I, honestly, it's, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> I can't 82 remember. Or 82 or 83. <laughs> yeah,
0: if you rem- remember, you weren't there, right?
1: <laughs> I, was, I was there in body, but maybe not in mind. Yeah, no. I can remember, I'm lucky that I can remember some of it, you know.
0: I thought it was very interesting. Um, this is Part of this is in B-movie, is when Muriel Gray brought the tube over to Berlin, yeah. and you yeah. were her guide, and one thing I love about the tube is I think a lot of the best new wave post punk kind of songs, like made their debut on the tube. It was like the coolest yes. show.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was very influential. The the tube, yeah, and and it was like M- Muriel had read about the the kind of squatter scene in Berlin and this kind of new wave music scene in Berlin. She'd heard about it through the enemy through a writer called Chris Bone who wrote us under the name of Biber Kopf and he wrote about the kind of alternative new wave scene happening in Berlin and the kind of squatters thing going on and she was fascinated by that and so she got in touch with him and said yeah I want to do thinking about doing a program Berlin special and he went oh call Mark Reeder <laughs> he'll, he'll organize it for me and that's exactly what I ended up doing you know I, I organized this entire program I'd never done it before you know it wasn't like it wasn't like I'm a TV producer or anything, you know? but it was just like, they just said, we want to come to Berlin and film all these, you know, film the the, the squat scene and the, the the people making music and stuff. Can you put a program together for us? It was kind of like, who would you suggest? Now I could have, if it had been kind of narcissistic, I could have chosen my own band thinking, you know, I'm going to be on British television and I'm going to be kind of superstars, you know, but I thought That's, that was too uncool back then, you know, we didn't take selfies back then. It was like you didn't put yourself in the foreground, and I just thought I want to have my friends on on telly, you know, as many as possible. Nobby malaria, everybody I can think of. You know, Turtleshadow you know the Edster. The Edster the were like two weeks old. They'd only done like one gig prior to being on the telly, you know. And I just kind of like put this program together for for the for the tube. But I also thought at the same time, Berlin is not just about West Berlin for me. Berlin's also about East Berlin as well. Let's show both sides of Berlin, not just the West side. Let's show the East side, show what what life is like on the East side. And they were like, how are we supposed to do that? We'll go and get permission, you know. Ask them if it's possible, if they'd be interested, you know. And so I went over to East Berlin and met with this bloke in a brown suit called Herr Kuhl. And Herr Kuhl was as cold as ice, yeah. It It was like a block of concrete, this guy. Every five minutes I ask him a question, he'd say, just get up and say, excuse me, I just have to go and ask. <laughs> went off, went upstairs to, to ask some authoritative person if it was all right, you know, to do this programme. What are you going to do, you know? And I say, explain everything. It's a, a, young, a youth programme, cultural programme. We want to show young people in the UK what the German Democratic Republic is like and, like, and you know, music that you have and stuff. And so that's what we uh, we did, you know. And it took took months of negotiation to you know make this program. And 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 the, and the the tube they wanted to show an East German punk band, but I'm, I said well, that's not going to happen because in East Germany punk punk rock is forbidden in East Germany because they see it as failing of the state and stuff. So if punks don't exist in, in officially in the DDR. You'd never have they'll never put a punk band on. So we need a we need a young band. The, these guys from the from from these from these German side, they kept kind of trying to sh- like show me like the bands that they wanted me to, to present on British television. It was like bands like the Poodies, Silly City, Karat. and these are all like aging rockers. You know, they're already like pensioners almost. You know, I said so this is a youth program for young people. You know, the average age of this program is about seventeen. You know, they don't want to see the grandads on telly playing kind of progressive rock music we need something young and I was like you know, getting despondent thinking it's never going to happen this and then I see these guys walking down the street I'm on the tri- I'm on the tram in East Berlin and I see the guys walking down the street one of them's carrying a guitar case and he looked kind you. I was like gosh he's young <laughs> I jumped off the train and ran off him and I said you know you're obviously in a band you know where do you where what's your name if you band and this is, oh, our name's Jessica and I was like Okay, what kind of music do you play? We, we, we're, like, we're like the police. we like the play. I, mean, I was like, oh, it's not really my kind of music, but I thought that's probably the closest we're ever going to get to anything that's anywhere near New wave and kind of new. And I said, can I come and see you're practising? They went, no, you can't. We're practising at school and you're a Westerner and you're not allowed to go into a, a building like a school or a factory. So I said, well, who's going to know? You know? They won't, they won't know if you don't tell anybody, you know, I'll just come with you. They went, well, the way you look, you know, and I was dressed, I was dressed like an undertaker. And they thought, they, they like, hey, you, I said, well, well, wait till it goes a bit dark and then we'll go. And then I we went to see them practice. I went to the place where they practice. And they were really good. I thought they were really, really you know, they're, they're actually quite professional. The guitarist had made his own guitar because he couldn't buy like guitars in East Germany you couldn't just go to a shop and buy you couldn't go to a music shop and buy an electric guitar a bass an amp and a set of drums and form a band it wasn't possible in East Germany everything was controlled it was a communist country so you could you know you needed permission to own a guitar an electric guitar you needed permission to be able to play an electric guitar you needed permission to be able to play an electric guitar in front of an audience and they didn't have any of this permission at all. They didn't even have to own the guitar. So he built it himself. The keyboard had built himself the synthesizer out of like cast iron. It weighed about seven tons. It was like a massive thing, you know, painted in a military green. And it was like, I thought, okay, I'm going to get these guys on the telly. And so all this kind of rigmarole and negotiations with all these like formalities and stuff. And eventually got these guys on the telly in the UK. And and these Germans, when they've realized what, the, what we'd done, they were like, we can't let these Englanders, you know, like show this new East German band on British television before we've done it. So they they actually shoved them on the, on a pop program like the week before, just so that they can say that they discovered them. <laughs> anyway, they, they 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 became quite popular in East Germany. You know, the music wasn't really my kind of thing, but it was it was you know fair.
0: You know, I forgot about this. S.O. Sex and yeah. What was it like in those early days? Because that seemed to be like the CBGVs of Berlin. Well, it, it was just initially it was just like a couple of nights. It was
1: a, you know, wasn't intended to be an, a, an extended club actually. You know, Kippenberg had put it on just to like some art events sort of thing, and then it kind of closed down, and, and then it opened up again, and then it became a regular venue for, for like new wave and punk bands, and it was. Just, the thing that I remember with the S O thirty six was that if they sold cans of beer there, they didn't sell glasses of beer. It's all cans of beer. So if the if the audience didn't like you, they'd can you off stage. And then at the end of the night, the sound you know when the concert has finished, when people walking out of the out of the. The SL 36 this crunching sound of all these cans kind of <laughs> everyone's trying to walk over them that i remember that more than anything else really about the sl 36 and it was quite, quite a largeish kind of venue you know maybe like 1500 people fit into this you know at, at, at a kind of lawful level um if something like when no about and played what something about Two and a half thousand people squashed in on when Tangerine Dean, uh, sorry, no, no, uh, when uh, Tobin Gristle played there, there was about, you know, 2,000 people in this place, squashed into this place. Um, but it was fabulous. It was a fabulous event place, yeah. And I got to play there too, you know, with my band, Umber Canton, by pure chance. Um, you know, by in, in a drunken stupor saying yes to the promoter who, who, who said, yeah, we're doing a gig for the 17th of June for the reunification of Germany you know do you want to play I'm like oh yeah, yeah. think not, not thinking the consequences of this I didn't have a band or anything you know and I thought what are we going to do <laughs> and, I, and I phoned up a friend and said hey Alistair can you, can you sing and I was just like strangers in the night we went, hey we've got a gig next Wednesday come round I'll show you how to play bass and then we, and then I got a drum machine and, and then we went on stage <laughs> and did this gig and, and when we came off we said we're never ever going to do that ever again that was the most terrifying experience we, we were like even across the road before the soundtrack we were writing the lyrics to the last song you know I felt like it was a terrifying experience and um and this girl comes running up to, up to us and it was uh, Elizabeth Recker from Monogram Records she went oh that was fabulous I want to do I want to make a record with you i like you're mad <laughs> yeah I want to make a record with you okay fair enough so that was the birth of the umber Canton.
0: Sos and Drys just like Susie and the Banshees at the Hunter Club. Yeah, <laughs> nice. I heard uh, a story about Bauhaus played there, and they got canned by the audience and spat at like. Yeah. Uh, and apparently, the the audience was very brutal there. They didn't like what you were doing, and it yeah, was yeah. a dangerous place to play we could believe that we
1: didn't get canned off stage. We absolutely,
0: we were expecting like a
1: barrage of cans to go flying at us at any moment, you know. We got, so I think one person threw a, not, didn't even throw it, kind of just tossed it onto the stage. I think it might have been full can of beer, you know, in the hope that we might drink it. Um, but other than that, you know, it was like, uh, we were we were—we were spared, yeah. And every time we actually we played, we were spared, you yeah? know. Because our next gig following that was with Malaria on twentieth of April. How was that? That was Malaria's first first gig, and then we did we did the Berlin Etonel Festival after, shortly after that as well.
0: Yeah. The Berlin Etonel is still a huge part of Berlin culture now. It's I mean, I... yeah. Oh, was it gone for a while? Then they brought it back. Yes,
1: yes it was, it was, it was. Like Dimitri, Dimitri thought no one would be interested in this kind of music, to be honest, and. Um, and when he took over the verk, uh, which is where the Trezor is now, um, I was like, "Well, you know, you should you should do that." here, it's fantastic, you know, and 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 I don't think he really kind of at that moment I don't think he really realised how many people would be interested in this music because he thought, like, mm, "I don't know." And then he, and then they did the first Strattonale festival. Eventually, you know, I did I didn't manage to talk him into it. I think he realised we should do something like that, but I did play at the. At the First Atenal Festival, of course, because I'd already played at the First Attenal in, in Cesar 36, so it seemed only natural that I should do the, the one in the Kraftwerk as well. So I played there, and um, and like, you know, two and a half thousand people turned up for that, and Dimji was really surprised that uh, so many people had come to this to this event, you know, and like the, the last one that, that finished, I think it was from like 23,000 people went to it, you know.
0: It's it's amazing the collaborations, uh, the multimedia, the light shows. I've never seen anything uh, like it.
1: And the and the place is just just, that, just that, like like rubs you of any kind of breath when you walk in and you see it and the sound.
0: It's just like brilliant. First time I was at the craft work, uh, I was saw Noi Bauten filmed for some sort of television performance, and, yeah, and I was
1: a I, way- I was the, the uh, compare for that. Ah. <laughs> I was dragged in to be the co-host compa- the co- co- it with uh, Silv- Silky Super, and I couldn't hear a bloody thing. You know they have the, you have the in- these in ear monitors where the where the producer upstairs is kind of like telling you to go move left and go right and all these directions and things. The place was it was so loud. I'd chosen like, like Niall to play and uh, Edgar Brutzman and Edgar Brutzen and, um, and uh, Wire, yeah. Mm. These were the choices that that like, we to have to play at this thing this year, this evening. So I thought I'll go full on with Edgar Brutzman and and Wire and uh, Wire and played in Berlin for ages. And I thought it'd be nice to see them again, Colin and that And um, I couldn't hear a thing. I couldn't hear, I couldn't hear, but it through these monitor, these the monitors that they give me. It just sounded like it was like someone, someone had put like a jet engine over my ears. You know, it was like <laughs> white noise. You know. So, I just had to kind of battle my way through. Yeah. So, you went to that concert. Yeah. It was, it was pretty intense, eh? <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't remember what year that was. It was, it was probably a decade ago, but um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, before I wanted to ask you some stuff about New Order, but before we go there, I just wanted to ask you do you think that there's a lot of misconceptions? You mentioned Ian Curtis is your friend. Mm hmm. But do you think there was, there's a lot of misconceptions about him with this legend of Joy Division and, and the music? Well, obviously,
1: I mean, the Ian Curtis that I knew, um, and, you know, I, I think it's a completely different Ian Curtis from what most people imagine him to be like, you know, because they, they see the photo rules Anton, that Anton Corbin took of him looking depressed, you know, and Ian was never like that, you know. He was always joking and always... Playing tricks on you and stuff, trying to trip you up at any opportunity. <laughs> you know, he was a, he was a funny guy, he was an entertaining guy, and creating you know well read and you know very politic and stuff. And he wasn't this kind of morose kind of person. You know, well, it wasn't with me anyway. You know, because I've known him since I've been a teenager. So, you know what I mean? It was like it was a it was this this image that people have of him is always a. This kind of super serious and depressed, and I think that obviously, like in, in his later life, when things started to go wrong in his private life, with his marriage and stuff, I think that um, that kind of got him in a different mindset. I just think he didn't know how to. get... He was too young to know how to get out of it, you know. And um, and to be honest, he always was kind of like fascinated by the, the heroic way out, as he puts it. Mm.
0: I believe that Anique was a friend of yours as well, and I think she was that her girlfriend. Yeah. There's a lot of misconceptions about her, I think, and uh, people seem seem to forget what she did with the Plan K and her work with music. Well,
1: it, well, even when when you look at what she was doing when she first met Ian, she was the secretary for the Belgian ambassador in London, you know, and she was she she was writing for a fanzine because she liked the music and she'd go out all these clubs in London. Um, so she was doing that before she went back to Belgium and started doing the Planque and Ladisda google and Factory Records, uh, Belgium, Benny Lux, um, and 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 the fact that she was kind of on the periphery, really, of Joy Division, you know, because she was lost, like she was Ian's girlfriend, and as the band conceived her as just being the girlfriend, of, you know, this kind of like the 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 the, the bit on the side, you know, really. Robert called her the Belgian boiler, and it was like it was like you know a bit kind of derogatory. They didn't really understand what she was about. They never really talked to her, so it was like she was just there. She was Ian's, you know, affair, you know, and um, and I think that that kind of you know she she was wanting to reach out because she wasn't wasn't allowed to go to the funeral and things like this. And so she was a bit kind of like lost, and she felt she'd been kind of left in the lurch, and she felt a bit guilty I suppose as well for it as well. And uh, and she, she 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 contacted me and eventually like after about a year we became boyfriend and girlfriend for, for about three years. Yeah. And that's how I got, you know, I took took brought malaria to Belgium and she you know, she, I, I introduced uh, a to Anik to malaria, the music of malaria. And um and then we did a gig together with New Order, Malaria and New Order in, in Brussels. And then she was convinced, right, you know, Tony Wilson doesn't want to sign this band, I want to sign. And so she signed malaria to curfew school.
0: Wow, it's amazing. I I didn't know that story that you just just told. I uh, I don't think I've heard that anywhere.
1: Don't go around telling people, really. (laughs) No one's ever asked me, so there's never been a reason to talk about it.
0: (laughs) I just think that she's a really amazing person that uh, kind of... Yeah, you mentioned she was on the periphery of Joy Division that overshadowed a lot of the great things that she did. And if I'm not mistaken, she had played a huge part in popularizing Front 242.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all these, but Lamarck and, and they're all like her circle of friends, you know, and they, they were all kind of like inter, interconnected and stuff, yeah. Yeah. You know, she, she you know, she, she, and she loved music, I think. She was fascinated by, you know, all kinds of different kinds of music. And, and um you know, that was kind of her driving force really. And I think that uh, you know, when she when she decided to stop like district school, that was really just because of, you know, internal bickering. Really yeah, she got fed up with it, you know, and, and and a few other things happened in as well, and she decided and, and when and when we split up, she decided that was probably about it,
0: really. Was that around eighty five or
1: yeah, about it now, a bit earlier, about 80, 84. eighty four.
0: Mm-hmm. But you kept in touch over the years,
1: not really. I mean, we did and we didn't. I mean, I'd say maybe once a year, something like that. Yeah, for a while, and then there was like a big gap, and it was only when a big a big gap in f- throughout the whole probably the whole of the nineties. Uh, it was only when um, Anton Corbyn wanted to make control that he asked me if I could speak to Anique and get her to give, you know, like, speak with them. And I, and, I, and I called Anique up and... Actually, actually, it was, uh, the story is really, really weird, and actually, weirder than that. I was... Years before, I got a request from uh, a film producer in America who was making a film about, wanted to make a film about Ian Curtis and um, Morby was going to be the producer... That never happened. But one of the other producers on that film, he was now working on Control. And he called me up and said, I need, I need you to contact Anique. We need to get in touch with her because we don't know anything about her side of the story. And as I'm talking to this guy on the phone, I get an email from Anique. And I'm thinking, oh, she's obviously heard about this guy, so I better talk to her before, before I even answer him. So I said, oh, oh. she's just written to me now, so I will put the phone down. And I said, "I said about the film." She goes, "What film?" I said, "The, the, the film that they want to make about you and, and Ian." She's like, I, "I don't know anything about this. <laughs> she never heard anything about." It. She she was just contacting me for something completely different altogether, you know. And I'd not heard from her for about five years. And, uh, and then and then I explained to her, and she was like, hey, "Who do you, who the hell's going to be able to play me and Ian?" <laughs> I was like, "Wesley Snipes, naturally, you know." And uh, and. Uh, you know, then eventually I wanted to talk her into it because I said to her, "You know, it's like, I think it's a re- it's a really good therapy because I fa- I found it very therapeutical with the longevity of like not really kind of like wanting to think about it um, since the eighties really to sort of like reevaluate the music and reevaluate our our role really as well." And um, I said to her, Nick, "It's really I think it'd be really good for you to to talk about it from this with this distance between." And she'd not even told the kids that you know she they didn't even know they'd listen to Jody Vision records and she'd be crying in the kitchen you know uh, they didn't know anything about her, her previous life and um, and in the end you know she did she said okay and uh, she sat down and talked to Anton and the producers and the scriptwriter and stuff and uh, and then the film control was made and I thought that was really important and I think the most important was the, the understanding of the relationship between Anik and Ian was really totally platonic. Because when, I, I, to my shock and horror, I discovered that Anik was a virgin. And that kind of like really put a different perspective on everything that I thought I knew about their relationship prior to that. And, um, you know, I tried to explain this to, to Anton and I said to her, you've got to tell Anton yeah, you know, because it's like, it's important. So Anton was, to, you know, we told Anton about this and, um, and the, the fact that, you know, Annick had never had sex with Ian at all. They just kind of talked about records and films and music and books and philosophy and all these kinds of things. It was like a platonic sparring partner, I suppose, a mental sparring partner. And, uh, you know, that, uh, Obviously, Debbie obviously thought that something else was going on, but she didn't realise that the the, the relationship was a completely different kind of relationship altogether. Anyway, and back then it wasn't kind of normal anyway, and people didn't get divorces back then either. Getting a divorce was this big scandal, you know. And so, you know, she obviously had this uh, different role and which we understood what their relationship was really about. And um, that made it even more sadder in a sense. And, 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 and I said to Anton, you know, you've got to be able to show that somehow. So every time in the film when you see Anik and Ian, either Anik is in bed and Ian's on the floor or in a chair or vice versa. And when you see Ian with Debbie, they're in bed.
0: Mm. And that's
1: how Anton got around it without
0: actually saying anything. Do you, do you like the film? Do you like the way it turned out?
1: I thought it was a really, you know, I mean, obviously it's Anton's movie version of, of Debbie's book, but I think it turned out, it's a very beautiful film, I think. And I think, it, it, you know, I can't help crying at the end. It really, it really really gets me, that film. More than anything, more than the sound of music or something like that, you know.
0: I think it was Bernard that said that one side of the coin was control and the other side of the coin was uh, 24-hour party people. Hmm. Yeah, they're two totally different kinds of films. Yeah. But I think they, they tell more be, maybe more of a complete story about um, uh, Joy Division and New Order.
1: Yeah, New and, and Factory. You know, I mean, I, re- I remember Rob Gretton phoning me up to tell me that, you know, he couldn't pay me because Tony Wilson had just spent like 10,000 pounds on a table <laughs> and was fuming. <laughs> And I was like, what and I had I had no idea what this table even looked like. He told me it's some designer table and I just thought it was just like a dinner
0: table, you know, and I had no idea it was some kind of designer thing that didn't <laughs> Yeah. So but you were you were really close with Ian, but were you also really close with Bernard? Yeah, of course, yeah, sure. Later on, much later. I mean, not much later on, but like later later on, was yeah
1: because um, I, I didn't really know but Ber- I mean, I known, only knew Burner from when he came into the shop to sell her ideal of live- for a living, you know, singles, give us a box of them, you know. Actually, I knew him from there. But, but but later on, I got to know, after, after Ian died, he came to Berlin and kind of hung out here to get away from everything in the UK. And I introduced him to Goodrun, and, you know, and this Berlin scene, you know. Um, and he needed that, you know. And we've been friends ever since.
0: Is it true that he... Gave you one of his uh, the kit synthesizer that he built. He only ever had one.
1: He only ever made one in Transindent two thousand. Yeah,
0: and, and did he, you have that. Yeah, he gave me, a, oh, yeah. Ah, that's does it still work?
1: No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, no. It's like it's we can't work out what's wrong with it. I've had it. I've had it to about like a thousand different people trying to work out how to fix this thing, and we have no idea what's wrong with it. Yeah. unfortunately. But that it is a beautiful object, you know. Seeing this selfie around, yeah, and it worked when Bernard gave it to me. You know, it It, it works. It works up until about uh, nineteen ninety-two or three or something like that, and then it just suddenly stopped working.
0: So you, you Bernard came to Berlin and he hung out with you and you know decompressed, and then later on he um, invited uh, Shark Vegas to tour with New Order. Yes.
1: Yeah, that was that was a, the, the New Order had this release uh, Blue Monday, which was went through the roof for them, you know, and um, and everybody everybody wanted to put them on tour, and so they were going to come to Germany and do, do, do a European tour, and they asked me if I'd be interested in doing the support act. You know, Bernard did wanted someone to talk to, you know, his mates, you know, to come along. So I was like, yeah, okay, and I thought I don't I don't want to go as as the unbekannten because. At this point, we would kind of we started to change the sound. We'd bought a sequencer and a proper drum machine and, you know, we had a couple of synthesizers at this point. And we wanted to be a bit, more, a bit more electronic. And it wasn't like, well, I wanted to change the sound. I want to be a bit more disco. If that new order just released Blue Monday, we wanted to be able to compete with that. You know, we wanna go on we don't we don't want to be this miserable kind of early eighties band in front of a a band like New Order, I thought that would really kind of like people would be th- throwing cans at us, you know. So I thought we need to be a bit more up tempo and a bit kind of like New Order esque, I suppose. So that you know, it will be kind of an equilibrium in the evening and stuff. And uh, so we changed our name. I thought you know if we're going to go to places like France and and uh, Switzerland or whatever, you know that people won't be, might not be able to understand what the de- unbecanton means. And the Brits always thought it said die unbecanton. So. And what does undercanton mean? Oh God! It's Call ourselves Shark Vegas. I just made it up one night. I have no idea what it meant. It didn't mean anything. It was just two, just two words that came to mind.
0: Makes you think of a card shark or something.
1: Um, I've no, I've no idea. It just came to me mm. one night. So I said the next day to Alistair, like, I thought, I've just, I thought of a name, Shark Vegas. He went, Yeah, right. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is it true uh, that Shark Vegas was the first thing people saw on German cable television? Yeah, is-
1: yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. like I've been doing, a, I've been putting together a, a program for a television network called Music Box, which is like the UK forerunner to MTV, and um, they were going to be opening. German cable television in, 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 in Germany, and uh, there was a big festival happening on near the near the broken church of the Kaiser Wilhelm Church in the center of West Berlin, and it was like, um, you know, like you you can play at this this gig, you know. So I was like, okay, fair enough, and uh, we we were the first on, and so when 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 cable television was introduced, it was like we were the first thing that people saw. It's a wonder they didn't turn off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What the bloody hell's that? New Orders hit single, Crystal. That was originally a a, a track on MFS, Mastermind for Success, wasn't it? Well, what happened was um, I was having a a bit of a a, a
1: difficult situation with Paul Van Dyke and uh, my former partner, Thorsten, and... Bernard decided to write a song for me and uh, it helped me out. And so I took this track and I gave it to some of my artists like Corvin Dalek and uh, Cyber Secrecy and Alex Flatner, And I said to them, you know, like, here's the vocal, make a, make a, 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 a here's just the vocal, make the song out of it. Because there wasn't really a song, it was just a drum beat that from the original kind of backing track was just a kind of rhythm, you know. And, uh, and Carvin's like, yeah, I've got an idea. And and it it was kind of like, a, a, as it was well, like sort of like coming towards the autumn, so, summer time anyway, you know, I thought well, we need to have something which kind of re- reflects that kind of feeling, you know, late summer kind of outside, still can go outside and with the warmth. And so we made, I went to Carvin's house and uh, recorded our version of Crystal with him. and um, And Bernard loved it. And he sent it to Pete Tong. And Pete Tong was like, you can't release that record. You can't release that record. You've got to talk Bernard into reforming New Order because they'd split up. up they kind of had a, had a hiatus, you know, sort of New Order, you know, since the Republic album the fiasco. So they had a kind of like a bit of a, a, a split and Pucky had done Revenge and Bernard had done Electronic and it was kind of like, you know, nothing happened. And, and Pete Tong's like, you've got to talk Bernard into doing this as a New Order record, of which I did. And, uh, it became a New Order record. And New Order got back together and had a good time in the studio and it was kind of like things started moving again for them, you know. But uh, yeah, it was... And and eventually I released my versions of Crystal on MFS, but I wasn't allowed to release it at the same time as the New Order versions of Crystal. But My my versions were were done about a year before the the ones that came out as New Orders.
0: When um, Music Complete came out, and there was a show over at Berlin, I think it was the Drome, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. You came You came out on stage and called and you ordered the best band in the world or something along those lines. Yeah. you stand by that?
1: I do, yeah, of course. For me, you know, they've been, the, for me, the, the best band in the world. You know, ups and downs and everything. The music, you know, the influence of the music, what it means to people, I think, you know, I mean, all right, of course. You know, some people might say Depeche Mode, are, you know, or The Cure, are, but you know, for me, they are, and for all those people that were standing there, I hope that they were for them too.
0: That was a great show. I that was a really, really great show. But speaking of Depeche Mode, aren't you doing a Depeche Mode podcast right now in German?
1: Yes, I am right now in German. Yeah, it's in German. Or they, they, they will. I've been told there will be an English version. So, so you know, eventually we'll we'll do an English version. It's just like to honour Depeche Mode from you know forty years of Depeche Mode is quite a, quite an achievement. Um, and I think that uh, you know it's forty years a new order too, for that matter. But it's quite an achievement that both bands have managed to you know, have maintained their success over this period and uh, grow from being. You know, like synth pop, teeny, teeny pop, synth band to being kind of like stadium rockers, really. It's uh, and being inducted into the rock and roll hall, hall of fame, which i never thought had happened to a synth band, really. Um, you know, it's a kind of achievement, and 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 it's a, the, the podcast is actually it's on eighties 80sde mm. If you want to just it's, but if you speak German, you know, it's a it's a, a it, an outside look inside. You know, the band don't have, have a word in but you know daniel miller whose birthday it is today um daniel miller um he he you know talks about depression anton corbyn talks about depression gareth jones talks about depression and it's a it's a you know a nice uh, insight into their career really
0: wow i i, I wish my german was better but I, it's not good enough for me to fully enjoy the podcast so i'll look forward to it in english We'll have to wait the, yeah. for the English version. Yeah, definitely going to be doing it. We talked about this before, but I find it re- still really fascinating that you've uh, spent uh, this time in China and you work with these uh, Chinese post-punk synth bands. Yeah. And um, most notably Stolen, for example, who you've remixed recently? Yes. Yeah, I did a, a remix for one of the tracks off the fragment
1: album called The Loop Syn." That's on Bandcamp. And any the other f- f- digital platform.
0: <laughs> are there any other other great bands over uh, from from China that make this kind of music that uh, you've been working with?
1: There are there are a few, yeah. like oh, the names escape me right now, but uh, there there are quite a few right now, yeah. And I mean, not like stolen have kind of been the the spearhead, if you like, of a of a new. Chinese music scene I mean they've never really had a music scene before to be honest the Chinese you know they've had, they've had their own kind of traditional thing and their own kind of pop thing but they've never had any opportunity to kind of like make any kind of mark outside of China with whatever they've done and it's all been a learning process of course over the decades you know, since, the, since the cultural revolution really you know kind of stopped everybody, anybody from being creative and, and I think that uh, the young people Chinese people right now have this kind of desire to kind of like try to do it themselves and do something themselves and be kind of it's not it's, it's that they're kind of almost avant-garde in a lot of ways. You know, it's not it's not like they drive driven towards kind of being a hit band. You know, making hit hit records. It's about being like it like it was a lot in in eighties Berlin, be creative, like a creative thing. You know, and with stolen, it was just so happened to be that it's. Uh, you know they've come become quite popular not only for the fact that they went on tour with New Order in 2019 and we did a European tour with uh, Stolen and New Order that kind of washed back into China you know and people are like wow you know they've they've made it in the in the West in the sense you know they've been able to play in front of a Western audience and be accepted by a western audience and it's boosted the kind of the enthusiasm within the young chinese music scene and i think that that is the most important part really you know it's like it's invigorated their little scene you know because they did you know floundering around you know doing a bit of punk rock and a bit of this and a bit of that and suddenly you've got a band that kind of actually does actually start to do something that's creative some something and um and that is really, you know, it's inspired a lot of young young people to go. And, and, and I, while, I, while I was there in China, I, was there, I went, actually went to China to show B-movie in, in China. My friend Nibing was a DJ. He, he invited me over to do a tour with the Goethe Institute together. And uh, I went throughout the whole two-month tour of China, showing the film in all these clubs and places that they have live music on and stuff. I didn't show it in the cinemas. I showed it in places that had, had a connection to music of some sort. And um, and at this festival in Chengdu, um, I saw Stolen. I was, I was DJing as well that night and I saw Stolen perform and I was like, wow, you know, they're so different to what I'd seen anything before. They kind of mixed techno and rock and that, and all these different things together. And they're all really good musicians and very enthusiastic and really dedicated and really kind of like determined, you know. And ambitious. And I was like, yeah, that's uh, that's something that I can kind of relate with. You know, I could see this energy in these kids because like, like, this festival was only five, like 5,000 people and on the outskirts of the Chengdu in this forest, you know, in the warning House Festival. And it was like these kids, 5,000 five, five, 5, kids all going completely apeshit. And I was like, they are really feeling this. You know, before, before Stolen came on, you had all kinds of different kind of bands, really, like cover bands, like punk bands and disco bands and all these things. And there's but all, all kind of like things that you knew. There's a lot of progressive rock bands, guys in check shirts and jeans, you know, playing kind of bluesy stuff and stuff. They all sounded a bit like Free or, you know, Bad Company or something like that, you know. Um, and it was all very well done and everything, but it just seemed to be a bit kind of normal. And then suddenly Stolen came on just kind of everyone had realized i realized that that moment when when they came on that everyone who was there had just been tolerating everybody else just waiting for them to come on and i was like you know in i was drawn into this enthusiasm sucked in and i was like wow that's great and so i went to the studio with them a couple of days later and we made a few demos really which i thought we'll just kind of see how it goes see if we can work together you know and um and they like that so much that they released it as an EP in China. And, you know, in China, everything has a rating system. So it's like, you know, everything's rated, you know. And uh, so music's rated on, a, on, the, on the Richter scale of one to ten. And uh, one is rubbish and ten is unattainable. And uh, we got 9.8 on the Chinese Richter scale of music. And they were like, wow, you yeah, know, great. We want to come to Berlin and make an album. <laughs> so, and so the, the year later they did and we were released and and, and and that was one thing I'd, I'd kind of stopped my record label in like 2008 because I got bored and I, th- I thought I was just teddy old ground here and I'm not going to do anymore until I find something that's really going to you know kick my ass you know and um, I just kind of let it kind of st- on ice you know see what happens and, uh, and I just went back into production making music myself and doing remixes and things and um and then, when I saw Stolen, I was like, wow, you know, what are you, going to, what are you going to do with this record? And they were like, well, we don't know, you know, we'll release it in China. And I'm like, what, you, what about in the West? And they're like, well, well do you think anyone would be interested? And I'm like, well, I've, I've made it with you, so I'm interested. And so I, I restarted MFS so I could present Stolen to the Western world. And, uh, you know, I think people have to understand, you know, like, there's, there's, there's two, three. There's different levels of China. You know, it's not just every, uh, we only in the West. We only ever get to see the news and the and the kind of like the political side, but there's also a another side, you know, to China as well, which is like more what we can relate to as as music fans and you know, cultural fans, I suppose.
0: Yeah, a friend of mine has been working. He was working for Vogue China for quite a while. I'm over, I think, in Beijing. And he was telling me just how wonderful the youth culture is there, Hmm. that you'd be surprised. And apparently, there's an expatriate scene there from people from all over, like a lot of people from the UK and from America. They're going over to China and and living like
1: punks. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I went to Wuhan, um, to Wuhan Prison, as it's called. It's like a bar. Yeah run by the first the, the guy who had the first punk band in in China in 1996 1996 is 20 years after the sex pistols you know and it was like uh you know he when he's when he started his band he did one gig and got arrested and ended up in prison and eventually he called his his bar Wuhan Prison when everyone walks around in like prison outfits <laughs> um it's got an interesting place but you know like Wuhan was fascinated by the the enthusiasm that I, I did, like, five days in, a, in, like, a kind of, like, a arts and design school in the outskirts of Wuhan, beautiful place. Instead of having, a like, a statue of Mao Tse-tung outside, they had a statue of Don Quixote, Yeah, Chase your dreams, you know? So a really fascinating place, and all these really creative young people, filmmakers, designers, whatever, they were all there. I did a couple of like five days workshops with them you know talking about music and how music's developed over the decades and things like this so they get a bit of an idea because they have no real idea how you know they just know the beatles but they don't know really anything about how it was back then when the beatles came you know what was what was what were the consequences of that and how how did it happen and things like that so I kind of gave a kind of like it's history, history lesson and every night we showed B movie to a like packed out room and uh and it was it was really interesting to see, you know, the people, the, how many girls came to the workshops, you know, to learn, how, you know, get the information and stuff. I was, I was quite fascinated by that. It's like very equally balanced, the scene, I thought, compared to, say, the UK, which is kind of like, you know, 70-30 male kind of
0: usually. Mm. That was, you restarted MFS for Stolen. Yes. But you have been... Making music over the past uh, uh, several years, uh, you, your last album before this recent one was Mauerstadt. Yes, and now you have Children of Nature. Yes, I, I, this is an album made together with a Lithuanian singer,
1: uh, Alanas Chosna. Yeah, um, I met him in, in uh, Vilnius in Lithuania when I was showing the premiere in B movie there, in, and uh, I, I, I ended up. Having to do a gig, and uh, and he, he came to this gig, and uh, we got talking, and uh, he seemed like a really nice guy. You know, the idea he wanted to do an album in English, and he'd never done anything in English before. And if I'd, I was interested, and and I thought, yeah, sure, we'll do something. And and we didn't really kind of communicate really so much for about a year, and then I got this request from a French film director, um, Antonin Baudry, to make a a love song for his cold war thriller called the call of the wolf and uh, i thought okay so i had a song and thought maybe alan would would be interested in singing this song you know and so he, he came you know he sent me the vocals i wrote the lyrics and he sent, sent him the, the lyrics and uh he, he did the sing the vocal for that singing on it and uh, that was in this movie and uh, and then we decided to carry on working together. We just did another track, another track, another track, and eventually it became an album, which we call Children of Nature. Yeah. And I, I, ideally, I'd like this to be a vinyl record, but the, the corona pandemic has kind of like restricted that possibility for the moment. And eventually it will be, but you'll have to wait to, for it to be vinylized.
0: Looking forward to that. Um, I think there's been a, quite a few things that you've been working on that have been delayed, though, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Some of them, I think you're supposed to do some New Order remixes. I did, I,
1: I did the New Order remix in August, yeah. But because of like pressing plant delays, this record's mm. been like shoved back and back. I mean, the, the, like Bernard did his mixes really quite early on, around about sort of like April or whatever. And then they immediately went into pressing with the two side, with A like and B side with that. Uh, and, then, and then the, the you know the, the the remixes are supposed to come out a bit later, a couple of months later. But because everything's been pushed back because of like, lockdown here and lockdown there, the, the it's like it's probably going to be June now. But I've been told that my my remix will be released on the fifth of March as a as a digital release, and, mm. and eventually it'll become it'll be on the vinyl. But whenever that is, you know. We'll see. Eventually it'll be on the vinyl for the for the interim period, right? In the mo in the middle, if you like. And the you know, it'll be released as a digital release. Looking forward to hearing that. I haven't heard it yet. So I actually thought Bernard did a so it's a really interesting song with really interesting lyrics. It's got it's got you know, it's a very it's a very um uplifting song. It's a very, you know, inspiring song, you know. For and I think that especially that right now for a lot of people who are feeling they kind of a bit despondent and things and the thing that, that you know my career's over or whatever so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a it's got a really good message and that was one of the things that I really liked about the song when Bernard said do you want to do a mix you know I was like yeah of course you know it's like uh, it's got a really nice message so I hope my message in my music comes his message in my music comes through you know I think that uh, you know I, I tried my best
0: you really I think you're quite good at uh remixes so I don't Thank think you have to worry well you
1: know like, the thing is like I I never tell anybody what I'm doing because I don't like tell, t- t- saying things before they're actually finished and it was announced in in I don't know like september or something that had done this remix and i was kicking myself thinking oh my goodness because the longer that people wait the greater the expectations they have you know this i don't know where the brains kind of go but it kind of like the dream of some kind of grandeur you know and what it could possibly be like and i just hope i don't disappoint anybody you know
0: you know it's become a cliche but when things get back to normal if normal will ever return is are there any things that you're looking forward to like you know it's our social lives are very much Wrapped around music, hmm. and so it's so strange to have not be able to engage face to face on so many things. Oh yeah. I, yeah! Anything you're looking forward to when we can actually
1: going out and going to going a club, and, you know, going just go, just like hearing music super loud. I mean, I, I, I you know, I'd ideally got like DJ myself, you know, and listen hmm. to the music really loud, and uh, that's what I, I miss. That I really do miss that, and I miss going to gigs, you know, seeing bands. I really miss that, um, and I think that you know we'll eventually get to that point. We'll be able to go back to that stage, but you know, who knows when that's going to be? The longer it, it, it the longer it takes, the more in- exciting it becomes. Really, you know. I mean, f- for me, you know, the first gig I ever went to was Roxy Music in 1972, and with Brian Eno back then. I was a school kid. I went I went after school, and. Uh, I was petrified. All these blokes bigger than me, you know, like I just stood in the shadows, just watching the band, completely scared to death. You know this gig. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how how you went and acted at a gig. I didn't, you know, I didn't even know I was going to get in. You know, uh, and um, and I've and I've basically been to gigs ever since that. Yeah. After after I went to see Roxy Music, I was I was hooked. You know, and I went to see as many gigs as I could possibly afford. You know. And and when I started to work for Virgin, that was great because I got free tickets for all the gigs. I could go to every any gig I wanted, you know. And uh, I could see anybody, you know, from the Pink Fairies and Motorhead to you know Sex Pistols, Last Night at the Electric Circus, everything, you know. And um, so, so I've been I've been to going to gigs since 1972 on a really on a regular basis, like virtually almost every week, and going to clubs nearly every week since like 1980. That was 1978, not unless not earlier, 1975. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. If you could call pubs, clubs. Um so so I, I you know, for the, for the like, last year, not going being able to go anywhere, apart from my own event, which was in February of 2020, <laughs> after that, then it was like, oh, getting a game over. Um, it's been a real, a real kind of deficit really for me. And I, I kind of miss it. And I don't like watching it online. <laughs> even though Stolen did an online gig and I did actually watch that, but, you know, like Stolen did an online gig after, they, after they'd been in lockdown for six weeks or eight weeks and they and they were supposed to go on China, and a tour of China and they couldn't do it so they ended up having to do a lockdown gig, which was, I think, the first one, yeah. And 650,000 people watched that. I was really surprised. It was really amazing. Like, wow. And it was worldwide. It wasn't just in China, you know, you could see everywhere. So that was quite impressed, you know, impressive. And, um and it was like okay you know that's that's all right but watching a dj dj on on on, on the internet it's not so not so exciting really and it's, you don't have the volume you don't have the trappings of the club you know you don't have the, the the sights and sounds and smells and stuff you know and i think that uh i really miss i really miss that and you know and i, and I miss traveling to be honest you know i miss tra- going to all these exotic places and meeting these exotic people and uh you know, giving them an insight into my life here in Berlin. Like, you you know, you're doing this now, but, you know, it's like I go around and I tell people, you know, what, what I did because I know that, and I've realised that, and I didn't know that before, but I realised in the meantime that, you know, not, not everybody had the same life as me, you know. And it's, uh, I feel very privileged, you know. To, I've had, I've had such a colourful life, and as it's happening, you don't realise it's, you know, you, you know, having Nick Cave sleep on yourself or sort of thing. It's like any it has no significance whatsoever until like later on when people come to you and tell you this is like, you know, uh, I, I, and and actually having, having made B movie and and seeing what kind of reaction that got because the only reason for me making it really was to kind of inspire young people into. You know, to see that see that we did all these things without ever having a mobile phone. You know, communication was done when you met someone in the bar um and chatted about it. And and I wanted to kind of inspire and infuse kind of some enthusiasm in young people and show them that things are possible, everything's possible, You just have to dream it, you know, and uh and and work it out. And we did all these things without any money, you know. Like I started MFS without any money, yeah. Yeah, i was like i i i made the last album of the ddr in the final days of the ddr and and i met all these people who worked for the amiga which was a state owned record label and i just said you know now now the walls come down and communism's finished you can release the rec, you know new music the brand new music techno and they're like we don't know what that is you know why don't you do it and so i started mfs then, you know, I didn't, tell, I didn't tell them I was going to call my label on my face. I, I told them it's called Masterminded for Success because these Germans didn't speak so much English, so they weren't so familiar with them Anglicism of any kind and it sounded kind of exotic anyway, Masterminded for Success. You know, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, it means created for success. You know, oh, yes, okay. That sounds good. And the only, the only found out was called Masterminded for Success when they saw the poster and it said, MFS, we are back and they went bonkers (laughs) they weren't very happy with that but it kind of you know stuck the name stuck
0: oh wonderful well i think that that's about it um thank you for doing this podcast mark i really appreciate it yeah you're welcome Thank you for listening to the Postpunk Podcast. If you like what you hear, please like, share, and subscribe and support us on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash postpunk. We can't do this without your support, so thank you. I'd also like to thank Jason Corbett from Actors for the intro music, Corinne for the outro music, Jenna, our producer, and our editors, Frank Deserto and Andy Harriman. Also, please visit our website, postpunk.com. That's post-punk.com for music news, video premieres, and more. Until next time, cheers.
1: Transfer complete.